thank you for the kind introduction. I've known Mark and Jennifer for about 16 years, and I've always been impressed with your heart for the gospel and your ability to communicate it winsomely and lovingly around the globe. I've often felt like a second-class Christian in comparison, but today's message would call that heresy. So, um, bless you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I drove over this morning from Gunnison, and uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's a beautiful drive. So pardon me while I set my timer. I'm sometimes apt to wax long, especially on topics such as this, which I'm excited and passionate about. 35 minutes. This should start barking when I run out of time. <laughs> so yes, I have uh, quite a few degrees at the end of my name. Uh, it's not a pedigree that I'm necessarily proud of, nor is it one. Hi, Zandy. My goodness, a familiar face. That's two. Oh, it, this is going to go much better. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I didn't plan to become a lawyer. This was not my life's path that I laid out. It's a very circuitous path and one that's littered with pride, selfishness, idolatry, greed, and shame. There's been a lot of redemption, forgiveness, and restoration along the way. So I came to faith at an early age, uh, but my faith really took off in college when I discovered apologetics. I went to CSU uh, and studied sports medicine, which is obviously what you study when you want to become a lawyer. But I fell in love with apologetics about midway through, and that snowballed into seminary. I went to Denver Seminary, and that's where Mark and I met. And was there until 03. I graduated with an MA in philosophy of religion. At the time, I thought I was headed for a PhD in philosophy, so I went and got more training from Georgia State in Atlanta and got a second MA in philosophy. But along the way, I realized that there were uh, a lot of red flags and ill motivations. I was, I was heading on that path more to please my earthly father than my heavenly father. And so once I was able to filter through a lot of that uh, uh, baggage, and I saw, you know, there was a point of humility, and I, I submitted my plans for my life, my career especially, to, to the Lord, and what do you have for me, Lord? And that's where law school came about. I graduated from DU in 08, and that was, uh, that was a blessed experience, and Mark is, is right. I did say uh, seminary was by far the more difficult degree, uh, hands down. So I graduated from DU Law in 08, and then I started in uh, a large law firm, and I worked in large law firms for seven years, and was on the, the path of, of partnership and all the prestige and all that stuff that comes with being a partner at a large law firm. And uh, two years ago, I, I, I took a different path and, and started my own firm, uh, SDG Law, Solidale Gloria Law, uh, my own shop. It was a huge leap of faith, I had no clients, had no idea where the next paycheck was going to come from, but uh, I wanted more time with family. I, I'm trying to integrate these various strands of life and, and going downtown to work at a large corporate tower um, just seemed to always be pulling against what I felt was a more integrated way of approaching this, this life that God has given me. So two years ago, made the leap um, and haven't missed any bills yet. God continues to faithfully provide. I represent churches and ministries, businesses, uh, nonprofits, um, and, and creditors in bankruptcy proceedings. My wife, Abby, and I have been married for 17 years. We have two kids, Mia, 11, and Tristan, who just turned eight, uh, and we, we home educate. I work from home, so we get a lot of family time and love it. Uh, 
and we recently returned to Gunnison where we grew up. So I came over this morning, I'll head back tonight. Um, it's not that far once you get used to it. <laughs> so I understand you're in Genesis 1 through 4, and uh, this is a, such an important topic. Uh, my own background um, ingratiates this topic to me because you know, I've always viewed my career as a lawyer as a calling. I, I often introduce myself as a minister of the law. Uh, but in addition to that, as we enter deeper in this post-Christian era in which we find ourselves, I grow more convinced that it's not the professional uh, Christians who will be on the forefront of advancing the kingdom of God, but the laity, us guys, uh, the people in the trenches out there. That's where, where God is at work. It's not just in here, in, in your church settings. Accordingly, a proper understanding of work itself is critical if we are to fully embrace who God has made us to be and properly allocate our days on earth. Far too many Christians devote decades of their lives chasing the things of this world, only to later look back upon those years with lament. Innocently enough, they simply went along with the sweeping current of culture, succumbing to the seductive siren song of status, possessions, and pleasurable pursuits. Matters of God were seen as separate, or only mildly connected to real life and things that really matter. They asked God to bless their lives, i.e. make them rich, successful, healthy, and the same for their children, businesses, and so forth. But they never stopped to question the path they were asking God to bless. And how they approached their daily lives, he remained on the periphery, occasionally consulted with, but never central to anything. A robust doctrine of vocation, however, removes God from the fringe of our lives and rightly places him in the center. No longer relegated to the existential ghetto of one-seventh of our waking lives, where we openly acknowledge him on Sunday mornings. Vocation redeems the entire week and brings our hearts into alignment with the reality that the king of glory is actually sovereign over all our week and intimately involved with every minute of our workday. There's no secular or neutral space that is ours. It is all sacred space. It's all his. When we recognize this reality and live in accordance with it, joy and purpose appear where there had only been drudgery and futility. Thus, while there is still time, let us heed the Lord's admonition through his servant Jeremiah. Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. Jeremiah 6.16 so this morning, we are going to look at the ancient path of Genesis and see God's heart for work. Then we'll consider some of the challenges we face in our modern work life that prevent us from realizing the work life God desires for us. Finally, we'll see the great hope of work redeemed that is available to us in Christ. Mark quite capably read from Genesis 2, but looking at a few verses from that passage, verse 5, if you want to turn there, Verse 5 of Genesis 2, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Right away we see an incomplete component to God's good creation that requires man to work. Verse, jumping to verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do two things, to work it, and keep it. Those were his two tasks. God 
has made man to work. We are made in the image of a working God. Therefore, we are made to work. And this was pre-fall. So man in his pre-fall, sinless capacity, must work in order to fully realize not only what sort of thing he is, but what his purpose is. Now this term work can also be translated as worship. The second task, to keep or take care of, is also translated to guard. We see this um, idea again come up uh, in a passage we'll read a little bit later, after the fall, when the angel is stationed at the east side of the garden, to guard the garden, to keep people from coming in. So man, man had two tasks in the garden, to keep it, work it, keep it and work it, uh, to till it, is another translation, to till the soil, to, to, to maintain it. Um, this, this idea of guarding also relates to teaching or doctrine. You, you guard your doctrine closely, right? Same idea. You see, says Augustine, there was no stress of wearisome toil, but pure exhilaration of spirit. This is pre-fall, pure exhilaration with work. When things which God had created flourished in a more luxuriant abundance with the help of human work. As a result, the creator himself would be praised more copiously for having given a soul set in an animal body the rational facility of working as much as would satisfy its willing spirit, not as much as it would be reluctantly forced to by the wants of the body. In other words, God uh, made us to work not just so we could feed the body. The body didn't need the food. But because our souls, since we're made in the image of God, our souls were crying out and they needed to work. So God gave us a body, hands, arms, legs, that would allow us to do so. Thank you, God, I have a body so I can work, is the praise that we give God. So these tasks to work and keep the garden, keep one from growing idle when all needs are provided for. Parents, think about your, your kids. You, you, you give, them, give them food, you give them clothes, you know, you, they, they don't have to work at all. What do they do, right? They're entitled, lazy. Right? So let's give them some chores, right? Give them, give them some appreciation, so, some tasks. <laughs> hey. Chrysostom says, like a loving father who prevents his young child from being unsettled by great relaxation and freedom, freedom from care by... By devising, this father does, he devises some slight responsibility appropriate to the situation. The Lord God, in like manner, ordered the task of tilling and guarding for Adam so that along with all those delights, relaxation and freedom from care he might have by way of a stabilizing influence. Those two tasks prevent him from overstepping the limit. And this will come up as, as we uh, go through the sermon a bit. Um, we, we need boundaries. Um, and that, that's where the great fall happened. You see this one, this boundary? You can be like God if you just overstep the limit. Well, right from the beginning, God gave those limits for our own protection. So to work or till and to keep or guard the garden were specific tasks assigned by God in order to accomplish the larger mission set forth in chapter 1. You wanted to turn there, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, 
let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So to rule, subdue, to have dominion. This is used in the context of a king's reign over people and over land. It comes up over and over in the scriptures. The idea of being Adam and Eve were the king and queen of the entire planet. Great royalty. In that role, man had the task of working the garden and guarding it. A task that apparently proved less desirable than becoming like God himself. In any event, work, that effortless joy of the soul as it was originally intended to be, would no longer be the same. For man fell from his high station. Well, you'll be going over the fall later. We'll, we'll skip over that major portion, but, but to the curse, chapter 3, verse 17, if you want to turn there quickly. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This word, in pain, other translations say, in toil, others say, in painful toil, is the same word as in verse 16, the woman's curse, birth pains. In pain, you shall bring forth children. The curse was now upon the great king and queen of the earth. From toil-free effortless joy of work we were talking about. It was so easy. You know, we just needed the boundaries. To this. That was fitting, right? I mean, the drudgery and toil of work. What's the deal? What happened? Chrysostom gives some insights here. Behold the reminders of the curse. Thorns it will bring forth, he says, and thistles, so as to give rise to great labor and discomfort. And I will ensure you pass the whole time with pain, says God, so that this experience may prove 
a break on your getting ideas above your station. Remember what they just did, right? They tried to go above their station. Obviously, the mere command wasn't enough. And you may instead have a thought to your own makeup and never again bear to be deceived in these matters. See how after his disobedience, everything is imposed on him in an opposite way to his former lifestyle. My intention, says God, in bringing you into the world was that you should live your life without pain or toil, difficulty or sweat, and that you should be in a state of enjoyment and prosperity and not be subject to the needs of the body, but be free from all such and have the good fortune to experience complete freedom. Since, however, such indulgence was of no benefit to you, accordingly, I curse the ground so that it will not in future yield its harvest as before without tilling and plowing. Instead, I invest you with great labor, toil, and difficulty, and with unremitting pain and despair. And I am ensuring that everything you do is achieved only by sweat, so that under pressure from these, you may have continual guidance in keeping to limits and recognizing your own makeup. Schaefer says, the results of toil's introduction are twofold. First, man shall have his food and all else by the sweat of his brow. Second, there's an end to this, an end that is not a release. The end is the great abnormality in the external world, the dissolution of the total man. A time will come at the end of each man's life when he physically dies and the unity of man, the unity of body and soul, is torn asunder. Christianity is not platonic. The soul is not considered all-important. Rather, at physical death, that unity which man is meant to be is fractured. This is the second kind of death brought about by the fall, the first being immediate separation from fellowship with God, and the third being eternal death as men are judged in their rebellion and separated from God forever. Thus, since the fall of man, our work has been subjected to futility. The biblical writers knew this intimately. Read Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And we sense it ourselves, don't we? That we were meant for more than the daily drudgery and futility and the grind of work. The reason why we long for meaning in our work is because to engage in meaningful, eternally significant work is built into our very nature. The drudgery, futility, and toilsome reality of our daily work only points us toward the joy-filled, meaningful, and easy work which God originally intended for us to experience and thereby direct us to Him. Yet this disintegration we feel between what we're made for and what we experience in daily life cannot be blamed solely upon our original parents or the evil one whose war against God's beloved has stretched from that fateful day in paradise to present-day Parker. Indeed, we have continued in our ancestors' footsteps and have failed to discharge our duties as the Lord's vice-regents. I now set forth a bill of particulars to indict us as a human race in our work. We take the giftings he has endowed us with, and instead of using it for his purposes, 
we appropriate those giftings for our own selfish pursuits and aggrandizement. Rather than faithfully stewarding our talents in a manner that honors God, we fear man and seek the approval of God's enemies. Despite Scripture's repeated warnings, we idolize money and fame, but we're made for so much more than lucrative investment portfolios and acrylic plastic plaques that sit on our bookshelf and tell us how awesome we are. Indeed, says Lewis, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. In addition, we sacrifice our friends, our family, our health, our happiness for our jobs and perpetuate a system that is wrecking havoc upon the modern family. Says Packer, in the Western world at least, and increasingly elsewhere, the family is in deep trouble. Relentless pressures arising from the centralizations of urban life are eroding domestic relationships so that their intrinsic primacy in human life is no longer being appreciated or lived out. Instead, these pressures cut off husbands and wives from each other, cut off children from their parents and grandparents, and cut off the nuclear family from uncles, aunts, and next-door neighbors. And from being everyday life's focal center, a sustained source of warmth and joy, there's no place like home, the home turns into a dormitory and snacking point from which family members scatter for most of most days. We separate work from our faith, denying God permission to access our secular life, claiming, thus far you may come and no further, God. We run from, bury, and hide our past failures, woundings and woundings in shame, where those points of healing and redemption are the touchstones God wants to use to work his redemptive purposes through you for the benefit of others. Yet we hide those. We deny the deeper longings of our souls to win or keep the praise of clients and colleagues, none of whom truly care for us or are really all that concerned about how we spend our days. We spin our way into debt slavery and thereby trap ourselves in hellish and soul-crushing jobs and in a blasphemous and murderous assault on the glorious initial project of the creation of man and image of God itself. We war against the Lord God's inextricably linked mandate to be fruitful and multiply by going so far as to mutilate ourselves, chemically and or mechanically alter and frustrate the God-ordained and designed system for reproduction, and even offer our own precious children on the demonic altar of mammon, killing them because they would purportedly, purportedly interfere with our precious careers. We have thus inverted creation itself. We have fashioned our own garden, dictated to God what is off-limits to Him, and forbidden entrance to anything and anyone that might frustrate our accomplishing 
our devised ends. Indeed, in our work, we have become the enemies of God, or rather, he has become ours. So what's the path forward? Where is our home? Can this meaningless, rebellious drudgery be redeemed? Is there hope? Most assuredly, yes. 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 The path forward is an ancient one, and it leads to a cross on a hill called Calvary. For Christ's atoning work on the cross redeems and restores all things, including our relationship with God and our work in reverse curses of the fall. That's all well and good, you might say, for my soul, but what about my job? I'm glad you asked. Turn to Luke 5, please. Luke chapter 5. Verse 4, and when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that, had take, that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. A few points of note. We've toiled all night. Ding, 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 Genesis 3. Toil, fall. We know that Adam's work was free from toil, right? But we don't really get a good glimpse. So what what did it look like? Because all we know is drudgery. We know post-fall, cursed work. But here we get, I think, an insight of what pre-fall and fully redeemed and glorified work looks like. There's no toil. Cast out the net. Boy, catch. If you've ever fished and not caught anything, it's kind of frustrating a little bit. I've never fished where my livelihood depends upon it, depended on it, right? I'm not a commercial fisherman. Peter was. Remember, Peter was a small business owner. This wasn't just a day out on the pond with the guys. This was his job. This was a business his dad did, his granddad did, his dad, okay? Uh, This was his reputation in the community. This was his commercial enterprise. And you have to read it that way. This was his work. So this day was certainly the most successful commercial day ever. This was the day he had been praying for. God, please bless me in this way. He dreamed about this. He went to conferences about this. He talked to the guys at the tackle shop about this day. Could you imagine if we had so much fish we needed both boats to come by? I mean, and it happened. It happened. And what 
was his response. They left everything. The text does not say they made sure someone stayed back and took the fish to market. The text does not say, Jesus, I'll be right there. This is awesome. I got to do something with this. Or now I can buy another boat, Lord, and then I can hire a couple employees and they can deal with it and I'll come and then I'll follow you. They left everything. Thus, when you work for the Lord, your profit, your legacy, your impact is always secondary. He is primary. Our primary call is to Jesus, not a job. Like Peter, we must fall on our face in worship and humble repentance before we can rightly approach our work. A good question, a good check engine-like question, gut check, ask yourself, could I walk away from this? Who would I be if tomorrow I gave my notice? How could I introduce myself if no longer I could follow it up with, I work there? When I look at my wall and see the things hanging on it, how much stock do I put in that? Where is my identity? Peter, Peter helps remind us just how spiritual our work is. And remember that word work can be translated as worship. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a priesthood of all believers. In chapter 4, verse 10, he goes on to say, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Thus, it's through the employment of our gifts in their various forms that God uses our work. Luther called this the mask of God. What is our work in field and garden, in town and house, in battling and in ruling to God, but the work of children, through which he bestows his gifts on the land, in the house, and everywhere? Our works are God's masks, behind which he remains hidden, although he does all things. If Gideon had not obeyed and gone to battle with Midian, the Midianites would never have been conquered, although God could, of course, have conquered them without Gideon. He could also give you corn and fruit without your plowing and planting, but that is not his will. Neither is it his will that your plowing and planting should produce corn and fruit. But you must plow and plant and say a blessing on your work and pray, Now help, O God, give us now corn and fruit, dear Lord, for plowing and planting will not yield us anything. It is thy gift. God is the giver of all good gifts, but you must fall to and take the bull by the horns, which means you must work to give God an occasion and a mask. 
Accordingly, it's the work itself that is significant in God's economy, not merely the platform for the gospel a job might give us, or the occasions to share the gospel with coworkers at the water cooler a job might provide us, or even the money to give to Christian organizations, as valuable as those things are. Moreover, because we're a priesthood of all believers, there's no hierarchy of spiritual importance in the kingdom, for we all are in full-time Christian ministry. So if you're an overseas missionary, or you're an IT tech at a cube in the DTC, we are all in full-time ministry. Like Adam's charge to keep and guard the garden, this understanding of our secondary calling to love and serve others with the gifts of God that God has provided us gives us structure and purpose to our everyday lives. Now, I know we're, we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. You're going to celebrate all October, that wonderful event. Um, just quote from Luther. Here's some Calvin for you. Now, this, this, this is a longer quote. Stick with me. We're coming, we're coming to the home stretch here. Um, but there's some, some good terms here. We're, we're talking about calling. Um, and, and Calvin really summarizes some of the themes we've been discussing. The Lord enjoins every one of us in all the actions of life to have respect to our own calling. He knows the boiling restlessness of the human mind, the fickleness with which it is born hither and thither, its eagerness to hold opposites at one time in its grasp, its ambition. Therefore, lest all things should be thrown into confusion by our folly and rashness, he, God, has assigned distinct duties to each in the different modes of life. And that no one may presume to overstep his proper limits, recall Christostom. He, God, has distinguished the different modes of life by the name of callings. Every man's mode of life, therefore, is a kind of station assigned him by the Lord, that he may not be always driven about at random. So necessary is this distinction that all our actions are thereby estimated in his sight. It is enough to know that in everything the call of the Lord is the foundation and beginning of right action. He who does not act with reference to it will never, in the discharge of duty, keep the right path. Hence, he only who directs his life to this end will have it properly framed. Because free from the impulse of rashness, he will not attempt more than his calling justifies, knowing that it is unlawful to overleap the prescribed bounds. He who is obscure will not decline to cultivate a private life, that he may not desert the post at which God has placed him. Again, in all our cares, toils, annoyances, and other burdens, it will be no small alleviation to know that in all these under the superintendence of God. The magistrate will more willingly perform his office, and the father of a family confine himself to his proper sphere. Everyone in his particular mode of life will, without repining, suffer its inconveniences, cares, uneasiness, and anxiety, persuaded that God has laid on the burden. This, too, will afford admirable consolation that in following your proper calling, no work will be so mean and sordid as not to have a splendor and value in the eyes of God. We understand our calling. It helps us say no. Yeah, no, I have no idea how to do that. Oh, there's the bark. Almost finished. I have no idea how to do that. Sounds like a great opportunity for someone else, but that's not my calling. That's not my station. But we have to know that. We have to know our calling. 
so that we can say no, so that we can say yes, so that we can suffer the grievances and the, the hardships. If you don't know your calling, you're tossed about. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, sure. I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I don't know. We must know our calling. So there is a path forward, a blood-stained path, where we faithfully exercise our callings as God's mask on way toward the celestial city. The scent of the flowers from the New Jerusalem blows downwind. We can smell it. We can see what's before us as we head that direction. Our labors, however, as of now, are not yet toil-free. They will be someday. In the meantime, our souls can labor with joy, knowing we're faithfully manning our posts. Let us not delay our journey down that path, for our calling is an urgent one. Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The Lord did not save you, his precious uniquely gifted children to build bigger barns. Indeed, he saved you for good works, which he prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So, let us repent of how we've squandered and selfishly hoarded our giftings and submit them to the gift giver. Let us return to and embrace our high and holy calling of being his royal ambassadors on earth and turn our attention to working and keeping the stations he has placed us in. And as we so engage our calling, may he do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever.